Even though I'm mindful of my race and ethnicity, when you're in the middle of the woods and your feet are hurting and you're thinking about food and you're like, where's the next privy or do I need to go dig a hole? Like when all of these things are going through your mind, the last thing you think of is your race. But then when someone sees you, their reaction to you reminds you like, oh, I'm still not well represented in this space. I'm still a surprise when people come across me. And that just adds another layer of nuance and complexity to the trail experience. Welcome to the Green Tunnel, a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail. My name is Mills Kelly, and I'm your host. That was Crystal Williams, an attorney in Maine, who completed a thru-hike of the AT in 2011. We're going to hear a lot from Crystal in today's episode as she discusses her experiences as a person of color on the AT. Throughout this season of the Green Tunnel, we've been asking the question, who is the trail for? If you look closely at the history of the AT, it becomes clear right away that until pretty recently, the Appalachian Trail has been a space for white hikers, even though it passes through or near communities of color. The Appalachian Trail is a much more diverse place in 2023 than it was as recently as 20 years ago. But if you spend much time on the trail, you know it's still a pretty white place. There are many stories about the challenges faced by members of marginalized communities who hike the AT, and we need a lot more research to better understand how the history of the trail and the history of race are closely interwoven. On today's episode, we're going to explore specifically how the history of the AT crosses paths with African-American history in ways you might not expect. When the Appalachian Trail Project began in 1925, almost half of the trail's route passed through Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia, where segregation was legal. And all but one of the Southern Trail Clubs that sprang up to help build the trail in those early decades were either formally segregated or practically segregated. Things were not much better north of the Potomac River. Although the Northern Trail Clubs weren't legally segregated, they often felt just as unfriendly to anyone who wasn't white. I've searched the archives of the various organizations responsible for the creation of the Appalachian Trail for evidence of any sort of policy or rule or guideline or even discussion of what it meant for the trail to pass through segregated states or what the impact of the Civil Rights Act might be for the volunteer clubs that care for the trail. And here's what I found nothing. Okay, not exactly nothing. I did find one letter in the archives of the Smoky Mountains Hiking Club from a club member in 1960 complaining about the club's whites-only policy and a response from the club president who regretted that there was such a policy. So not nothing, but almost nothing. It's as though the trail clubs and the ATC existed in a fantasy race-free zone 
where the racial divisions tearing the country apart in the first two-thirds of the 20th century were happening in an entirely different country. The National Park Service was no better, and maybe even a little worse, when it came to dealing with the issue of race in the two national parks that the trail passed through, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and Shenandoah National Park. The National Park Service, like most federal agencies uh, at this time, was officially non-segregationist. It accommodated all travelers. But unofficially, it had a policy of dissuasion for Black and other non-white visitors. That's Phoebe Young, a professor of history at the University of Colorado Boulder and the author of the book Camping Grounds, Public Nature and American Life, from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. What Phoebe found in her research was that the superintendents of the various national parks were very uncomfortable with the presence of Black visitors. Essentially, they voiced discomfort with their presence. They worried that some of the rangers or other concessionaires in national parks, that the staff were largely white and that they might object to serving Black visitors as customers in that sense. The resolution of this was an unofficial policy of trying to discourage Black travelers. As they said, while we cannot openly discriminate against Black travelers, they should be told that the parks have no facilities for taking care of them. And the context for this is important because this is the 1920s, when otherwise the parks were advertising themselves in every corner of the nation as places to go and come visit your parks that these were public spaces for all, but that behind the scenes, they were doing exactly the opposite for Black communities, suggesting that they not come. In the Jim Crow South, the establishment of Shenandoah and the Great Smoky Mountains National Parks forced federal, state, and local governments to strike an unwritten accord on how to handle potential Black visitors in the 1930s. And while the AT didn't officially become part of the National Park Service until the late 1960s, strategies adopted by the Park Service and its partners certainly shaped how trail clubs approached the question of membership. The Shenandoah and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park were new additions to the Park Service in the early 30s. These were the first national parks to open in uh, the Jim Crow South. The Park Service and President Franklin Roosevelt had to tiptoe around how to deal with this question of a Jim Crow state and a federal park within it. The local population was concerned that the new facilities that were being built would not adhere to uh, Jim Crow. And so there was a kind of delicate, mostly private negotiation to which we only have scraps of evidence uh, in the archive about this to suggest that the National Park Service um, decided to bow to local custom, that they didn't want to set up what they called a jurisdictional island, meaning a non-segregated space surrounded by segregation uh, by law uh, in these states, that it would create too much uh, a dissonance for the inhabitants Some trail clubs embraced segregation more openly. Until the early 1960s, membership in the Smoky Mountains Hiking Club was open to any reputable white person, as their membership handbook said. 
Other clubs were more in line with the practices of the National Park Service. They restricted membership by imposing requirements that forced potential members to be nominated by at least two club members and to take part in several activities before being eligible to join. This made it easy for club members to make sure potential members were white. These sorts of restrictive membership practices were common from one end of the trail to the other. You can see the impact of these requirements in the annual meeting photographs of the various trail clubs. Until the 1980s, almost every face you see in those photographs was white. The Appalachian Trail Conservancy blazed a similar trail. The ATC used to hold its annual meetings at segregated resorts in southern states on a rotating basis. This meant that any non-white trail club member would not be welcome to stay at the resort where the annual meeting was being held and might not be allowed into the facility at all. The possibility of racial violence along the trail was a real thing. I spend a lot of time these days reading old shelter registers. In 1981, someone at what is now the Trey Mountain Shelter wrote in the register in big bold letters that all black people will die here. But the author didn't use the term black people. I think you can imagine what they did use. That entry is problematic in two ways. First, there was the threat against black people. Second, none of the hikers who wrote in the log after that felt compelled to scratch it out or comment on it. I wish I could say that shelter register entries like that one were exceptional. Instead, shelter registers from up and down the trail include similar threats and reminders of the Confederacy and the Lost Cause narrative, like drawings of the Confederate battle flag. Even today, it's not uncommon for hikers of color to see Confederate flags fluttering from poles in front of the only resupply store in some of the towns they visit during their hikes. Sometimes, direct threats are written in the logs or spray-painted on bridges or signs along the trail. These kinds of threats and imagery have been and continue to be part of the cultural landscape of the AT. But it wasn't until 1987 that a black hiker, Lori Tenderfoot Pierce, completed a through hike of the AT. And it took almost another decade before the first black man, Robert Taylor, completed an AT through hike. But that didn't mean that black Americans didn't want to spend time outdoors. Black Americans were just as interested in outdoor recreation as white Americans, and, and my research really only scratched the surface. What I did was look in the largest national Black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, at the time, uh, to see if there were articles uh, about various forms of outdoor recreation, camping included, but not exclusively. Because if you looked at any local newspaper in the 19-teens and 20s, you would find articles about you know, from the society pages of people going off on these camping excursions to ads for outdoor gear to stories about parks that were available. And so I found similar sets of discourse in the Chicago Defender at the same time, camping and outdoor recreation being promoted for health, for uh, sort of a family getaway, to see the, the sites, to get back to nature. 
And so you see this in kind of a, a series of different articles uh, and uh, letters to the editor talking about the benefits of outdoor recreation. But if you dug a little bit deeper, you could see some cautions that we did not see in other newspapers around how to camp, uh, around what it meant to camp. So, for example, in the sets of issues that I looked at where uh, outdoor recreation was being promoted, you also saw references to African-Americans traveling who were refused accommodations in any number of towns. And so, for example, one from Carbondale, Pennsylvania, it said, if you're going to go to Carbondale, Pennsylvania, you better bring your camping gear because there are no hotels or inns that will accept black travelers. So in that way, it was used kind of sardonically as, as a joke, but a serious one in the sense that they weren't really seeking camping as an experience of nature, but that it was something they might have to resort to if they were refused indoor accommodation. It wasn't part of our culture. I think that was in part informed by the significance of the woods in the Black community. Whereas during slavery, it was an opportunity for escape. As we moved through history and lived under Black codes, Jim Crow laws, lynching, being in the woods as a Black person became a place where you met death. And so I think that has become part of what was passed down. In 2011, Krista Williams followed her life stream and through hiked the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. She did it as a Black woman hiking alone. So when I was at the point in my life where I was really questioning my life choices, I was working in a Fortune 100 company in a job that was really not feeding my soul, you know, classic corporate burnout. The one dream I had from when I was 19 years old that I had not yet given myself permission to explore was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And growing up in North Carolina, being in the outdoors, hiking was not something that was part of my family's culture, like many Black families. It was just not something I ever thought about. Didn't even really know that was a thing. But my first year at Williams College, and I met a through hiker. I don't remember their trail name. I don't really even remember their features. I just remember it was a white male, youngish. My memory of my interaction with this person has a hazy glow of time, but I just remember the way he talked about the trail. What it evoked in me was just so magical and beautiful. Although Crystal became enamored with the idea of hiking the AT, as she explained, the woods can take on a different meaning for Black Americans something white Americans might not fully realize. Phoebe's research helps us to understand why. So there's a much deeper history uh, to this, and resorting to camping outside for functional reasons was not something that many Black Americans uh, wanted to contemplate. Plenty of evidence suggests that African Americans associated sleeping outside in kind of uncontrolled spaces with threatening, unfavorable experiences. The lack of reliable accommodations at inns or hotels, um, or even tourist camps uh, or cabin courts, kind of early motel-style accommodations, whose operators often refused to accommodate African Americans, made long-distance travel a kind of risky proposition. 
Failing to find lodgings might mean driving all night, sleeping in their cars, or in a field, or a barn, all of which could leave them quite vulnerable to being harassed by local sheriffs, being thrown out from what were called sundown towns, where the law held that African Americans could not be in the city after sundown, or accosted by members of the Klan, which was experiencing a national resurgence in popularity in the 1920s. And all of this rested on yet an even longer history, where in the post-Civil War era, freed people, so African Americans recently freed from being enslaved, if they were sleeping outside, they could uh, be criminalized as vagrants wherever they set up camp, at the same time when white travelers basically assumed they had permission to camp on, on private or public land. And so these kinds of assumptions about who belonged in outdoor spaces often shaped how many outdoor park rangers or law enforcement or camp managers would have looked at Black presence in this landscape. In many ways, uh, African Americans did not feel either welcome or safe in many of these spaces that were very much surveilled by white expectations and white law enforcement. Lots of hikers, whether they are through hikers, day hikers, or weekenders, go into the forest afraid. After all, most of us live a long way from the nearest forest or mountain, so that kind of wildness is outside of our normal experience. But if you're a hiker of color, there's an additional layer of worry. I was very conscious of being a Black woman. When I graduated from college, I wanted to hike the trail. I talked to my father, who was a police officer in Carborough, North Carolina, and he was like, oh, well, you know, women get raped and killed on the trail. So I was like, okay, not doing the trail. So it took me another 19 years before I kind of gathered up the fortitude. But going to the trail, I was really conscious of those safety concerns, being a woman, but being a woman of color. Crystal's story tells us a lot about how much the trail has changed since the 1930s and how much it hasn't. There's a lot in the intertwined history of the ATN race that remains untold and in some cases, avoided altogether. At R2 Studios, we're on a mission to democratize history through podcasting. But making our shows for you requires a lot of investment. For every minute you hear, our team has spent countless hours researching in the archives, interviewing guests, writing scripts, and editing audio. Invest in us today so you can help us make the best history podcasts out there. Head to r2studios.org and click on Support Us to find out how. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Sometimes, when you're researching in an archive, you find something you can't unknow, no matter how hard you might try. This happened to me in the fall of 2019 when I was working in the archives of the ATC outside of Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. That particular day, I asked the Conservancy's longtime archivist and publicist, Brian King, why he thought I couldn't find any evidence in the archives discussing the impact of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on the trail supporting organizations. Brian said that, in his opinion, it was because the leaders of the AT community in those days 
wanted to pretend that the trail existed outside of the problems of American society. And so they did their best to ignore things like the struggle for civil rights. Then he told me I should look at a folder back in the storage room labeled Interview with Paul Fink. Paul Fink was one of the founding members of the ATC way back in 1925. He was the person responsible for convincing the ATC leadership to route the trail through the Smoky Mountains rather than up and over Mount Mitchell in North Carolina. He's listed on the website of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park as one of the notable contributors to the founding of the park. And he is a member of the Appalachian Trail Museum's Hall of Fame. In the late 1970s, two members of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, Ed Garvey and Ed Hanlon, decided to interview Fink for the Appalachian Trailway News. He was the last surviving founder of the AT, and they thought it would be interesting to hear his stories about the early days of the trail. Hanlon was a senior official at the Federal Aviation Administration, and Garvey had just retired from a very senior position at the National Science Foundation. Garvey had also recently published the first book detailing a successful thru-hike and wanted to make sure Fink got his proper due. Garvey and Hanlon went to visit Fink at his home in the beautiful little town of Jonesboro, Tennessee. Fink told them many stories from his life, especially his experiences as a backpacker in the Smokies. Garvey and Hanlon then wrote up a draft of the story and sent it to Fink to get his feedback. In that archive folder, I found the draft of that article. I also found an audio tape of the conversation they had with Fink when they went back to Tennessee the following year to get his take on what they'd written. Their draft read like a standard alumni magazine puff story about our oldest living alum. There were stories about Fink as a child, stealing his grandfather's tobacco, and stories about his experiences hiking. But then, on the last page, Garvey and Hanlon wrote the following paragraph. Paul had been tanning animals, such as fox, possum, etc., for more than 40 years. He always wondered what kind of leather human skin would make. So one time, in came a skin, which he took downstairs and tanned. He took us downstairs and showed it to us. When I read that, I just sat there, staring at the page. I was amazed that in 1979, two well-educated men from the Washington, D.C. area could have written something like that into an otherwise puff piece about an old hiker. It was just astounding to me that they could so casually throw in an act of total barbarity as though it was just one more amusing story about old Paul. I listened to the tape of their second interview, also recorded in 1979. I heard Fink express reservations about that particular paragraph. I think it's important to hear his interactions with Garvey and Hanlon on this point. You'll hear Fink first, followed by Garvey. You want to oh, yeah. What, what I thought, too, Ed, was this. I thought in the interest, and I explained in the little letters here, the interest of, uh, well, uh, one thing or another, 
that they might leave out that uh, little uh, uh, item about the piece of leather that I had around here. Well, okay, because uh, there's probably more in here than we can use anyway. I marked that paragraph yeah. out. Okay, oh, I guess all right. Back to, yeah. the, the idea of that is just several people, when they've seen that leather, they begin to get uh, queasy and so on, and well, they look at me, and one of them says, said, you must have been sort of a barbarian. I said, you're darn people, but you know, you're advertising. And uh, all like that, and as some people might uh, wonder if a person that was a semi or more barbarian had anything to do with organizing this trail business. Yeah. I okay. don't want to even ride over it. Yeah, okay, we'll uh, see. It's out. I just took it up. <laughs> it's gone. I just took it up. Just, yeah. just took it up. So we'll leave that part out. Okay. But the one about the tobacco was good because that's that's kind of funny and every kid has gone through that. Huh. Yeah. I said the one about the tobacco was good. All right. Because every kid, I went through the same thing and uh, yeah. uh, that, that's good. And uh, At that moment, I was almost as disgusted by the chuckling of Garvey and Hanlon as I was at Fink's ghoulishness. At least he had enough sense to know better than to include something like that in their story. Garvey and Hanlon clearly didn't have that same level of awareness. I was astounded by their casual racism. That day in the archive, I resolved that I would learn the entire story of what Paul Fink had done and Garvey and Hanlon's attitude toward that barbarism. I traveled to the archives in Knoxville that hold Fink's personal notebooks. I went to Jonesboro and read through his personal papers held by the local historical society. I sat on the wall opposite the house Fink built and was living in when that first interview occurred. I talked to every archive and museum director in Tennessee and North Carolina who might know something anything about this story. I interviewed one of Ed Garvey's children. I tried to track down Fink's and Hanlon's descendants. And I dug and dug through the archives of the ATC. At almost every turn, I hit a dead end. I did learn from a note scrawled in the margins of one of the article's drafts that the person's skin came to Fink from a medical student who he knew. But I never learned who the skin belonged to, or how this medical student took it from somewhere and gave it to Fink. I also don't know when Fink acquired it. We may never know. And while the story is horrific, in some ways, it isn't surprising. Fink's life spanned from the early 1890s to the early 1980s, a century that witnessed repeated acts of violence against black bodies, including sterilization of black women during the American eugenics movement, medical experimentation on black men at the Tuskegee Institute, lynchings, and other forms of mob violence. We may never learn when Fink came into possession of that person's skin. It's also unlikely we'll ever know the name of the person it belonged to. But as historians, we have an obligation to keep searching for answers. History is filled with things we'd rather not know, about the people, places, or things we love. The Appalachian Trail is no different. 
we have to confront the fact that some of the leaders of the trail project, even leaders we've revered, contributed to the racist history of the trail. And this includes Paul Fink and Ed Garvey, who are both in the AT Museum's Hall of Fame. But progress is happening. For one thing, the ATC and the trail clubs are working hard to make the AT a much more inclusive place. And the notion that black people don't hike is one that a number of organizations, like Outdoor Afro, have worked hard to combat, even though it remains deeply intertwined in the way many people along the trail think of who hikes and who doesn't. During her hike, Krista Williams encountered a little bit of everything along the way. Throughout my experience, I had the full spectrum of responses. For the most part, people were excited to see a Black woman, almost awkwardly so, like for lack of a better word. One experience I remember was north of Damascus, there's the captain's house. And he was so, so excited to see me because there had been another Black hiker, Cayenne, who was about two weeks ahead of me. And so for him to see two Black women hiking the trail by themselves, he was just like almost boiled over. And so those were often the types of experience I received were people who appreciated the additional challenge and wanted to support kind of the courage of me being out there by myself as a Black woman hiking. They really wanted to see me succeed. As Crystal hiked, she fell in love with the natural world around her and really gave herself to the trail. I don't know. I just gave myself over completely to the experience. I allowed myself to be shaped by the trail, by the community that I encountered and that I became close friends with. I just approached it with such humility. I just remember my early days on the trail where I was literally scared, scared of every noise I heard. I was so stereotypical, right? It's almost embarrassing. But then probably about three or four weeks in, I started to really appreciate what it meant to live in a very close and symbiotic relationship with the natural world. I became much more attuned to the shifting of the forest and how alive the forest was, even when it was before the budding of spring. This sounds so mystical, and I just fell in love with that process of hearing the earth groan and watching it wake up. You know, there's a reason why, you know, I think people start in the South because you walk with spring. It's just really beautiful to see the natural world wake up in that way. And that waking up also paralleled my own kind of shedding of all of the layers of all of the fears that I had going into the woods. But for Black Americans, there's always another layer. Near the midpoint of her hike, Crystal learned that her grandmother had passed. And as she hiked north out of Shenandoah National Park, her grief added to the weight she was carrying on her back. You know, my grandmother was one of those women. She was just so formidable. And she was like a little slip of a woman. And she spent her whole life either cleaning houses or working in department stores. And what I was told was that she was one of the saleswomen at Macy's that helped integrate the sales floor. 
with her death and the celebration of her life so present in my mind, as I was walking into Harper's Ferry, it just really struck me that I was in the bright light of day walking through woods that people who looked like me and maybe even some of my ancestors and relatives, they had traversed that same terrain in the dead of night to escape the horrific conditions of slavery. I just broke out into tears. It was this weird combination of the weight of history and the profound freedom of the privilege I was experiencing in that moment of just full recognition that so many things went right in my life to give me that window to step away from a full-time job, to purchase the gear that I needed, to be able to walk unfettered through the woods in the bright light of day. And that still stays with me, especially the more I learn about the history of our country and the history particularly around that area of the trail, there's so many civil war sites. And so that was also something that I was conscious of. I learned later was that Harper's Ferry was the site of a failed slave rebellion. And so all of those things, particularly as a black hiker, knowing the history of our nation and what happened on the same soil that I was now walking across, you know, with all of this really expensive gear on my back, that's, um, that's a lot to hold. That's a lot to hold. The trail teaches hikers many lessons about nature, about persistence, about joy about sadness, about how to overcome doubt, and about being accepting of difference. For Crystal, many of these lessons have informed her current practice. I started my own law firm, Providentia Group, and it really is a platform for me to bring my legal education and experience and my business education and experience together to really look at strategically solving or addressing some of the major gaps that exist in our society today and really with a focus on racial equity. Part of what I brought with me from the trail is at the beginning of my journey on Springer Mountain where I let go of this goal of getting to Katahdin and focused on the process. That insight and learning I definitely bring with me in my current work because holding the goal of racial unity and racial equity is very heavy, but I can focus on what's the project in front of me and what are some meaningful goals in that project. I think also more practically, and this is something that I've done throughout my whole life, I've always been very mindful of representation and seeing attainable standards of excellence and success. I tried to model that for my younger siblings, and in my current role, I try to model that for the broader community. Living here in Maine, 
there's this myth that there are no BIPOC folks or Black folks in Maine, and there's actually quite a thriving community, but we're often not very visible. And so while I typically like to fly under the radar, here I'm accepting a measure of visibility because I understand the importance of having someone to look up to and, and seeing yourself in a professional way. And I'm wondering, particularly as we wrestle with the future of the trail, because let's be honest, if the trail community does not actively embrace diversity, the future of the trail really will be at stake. It really is incumbent on clubs to not just say they want to be more diverse and to say, well, if someone comes to our door, we'll open it. But how do they actually open the door, go out into the community and build those relationships and invite not just Black people, but Latinx people, new Americans into that space and into a enjoyable relationship with the trail and the woods? Because it's an amazing, amazing resource. And how do we have those complex conversations about the problematic aspects of some people who did amazing things for the trail, but were not so stellar in other parts of their lives? This, I think, is a question not just for the trail, but for our nation as well, which is we can't change the past. We can't change the fact that millions of Africans were enslaved and that enslavement lasted for several generations. And after that enslavement, there were explicit laws on the books that allowed the continued dehumanization and killing of people of color, Black people specifically, but also we have a problematic history with Asian Americans. There is no racial minority or ethnic group that have not had a problematic past with the white majority. And we haven't even touched on the indigenous history. How do we have honest conversations about the complexity of our history without denying that progress has been made almost in spite of ourselves? And how do we find that path of redemption forward? not just for individuals who may have contributed to beautiful things like the Appalachian Trail, which continue to provide enjoyment for many people, but how do we ask that question and wrestle with the path to an answer for our nation? The Green Tunnel is a production of R2 Studios, part of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. Today's episode was produced by me, Mills Kelly, and the Green Tunnel's executive producers, Jeanette Patrick and Jim Ambusky. Our original music is performed by Scott Miller of Swoop, Virginia, and Andrew Small and Ashley Watkins of Floyd, Virginia. Additional music is provided by artlist.io. Thanks to Phoebe Young for her insights about the camping experiences of Black Americans. Thank you to Megan Rosenblum, who, along with her book Dark Archives, helped us to think through this episode. And above all, we owe a special thank you to Krista Williams for sharing her story and for her help in developing this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you back here soon.